Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. This morning we're continuing on in our study in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 20. Uh, we've made it to verse 27 this morning. Uh, so you can be turning in your Bible as you uh, get ready for this morning's study. Um, we are in this period of Jesus' life. The Gospels are, the majority of the Gospels deal with these six days of Jesus' life. This is really the heart of the gospel. And right now, Jesus is being interrogated. He's cross-examined. He's being inspected by all the leaders of Israel there in Jerusalem, in the temple, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and they're all trying to catch him. Last week, we finished up where they said, is it lawful to pay taxes? And Jesus says, well, bring me a denarius. And he says, whose picture is it? And they said, well, that's Caesar. He says, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things that are God's to God. We are created in the image of God. That's the imprint on us. And the, the real message here is we're to give to God what we can. Well, every time they would try to trip him up with a question that would make him look bad in front of the people or show that his theology was in error, he would always um, <laughs> school them, learn them, you know, to help him see what's up. In verse 26, we read, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. And so as the Lamb of God is at Passover being inspected to see if he's without spot and blemish, he continues to silence his accusers. He continues to silence his critics. And we're going to go on again this morning with another couple questions. In verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is something that's come to be known in the church as the Leverite marriage. Lever from the Latin, when the Bible was translated in Rome, uh, lever means brother. And this is the marriage of the brother. And the way that this would work uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, let's see, what is it? Um, verses 5 through 10, you can read about this. But what it is, is the land was always supposed to stay within the possession of the families to whom it was deeded when they came into the promised land. But there could come up a circumstance where somebody got married, the husband died before they could have children. It was the duty of the next brother in line to have children through that wife so that the property didn't pass into heathen hands, into pagan hands, but always would stay within the marriage, okay? And that was kind of a problem, or a, a, a solution, I should say, to the problem of what happens with all these different marriages. Well, these guys, are, the Sadducees, bring this question to Jesus. They're going to trip him up. Now, you need to know a little bit about Sadducees. Sadducees, um, the, the name literally means the righteous ones, and it comes from uh, a priest by the name of Zadok, who served during the time of David. And these are the descendants of Zadok, the Zadokites, which is where we get the word Sadducee from. They consider themselves a righteous one. But they were in Jesus' day a religious slash political party. And they were very influential in their day. They would be distinguished by, A, birth. You had to be born a Sadducee. You had to be born a son of a priest. So they thought they were all that in a bag of chips. But it doesn't stop there. They were also very wealthy because of their positions of power. They amassed much wealth to themselves. And they all had official positions within society. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council that oversaw the affairs, somewhat like our Supreme Court today in America, uh, was comprised mostly of Sadducees. They held sway 
over the Supreme Court and the laws of their land. So they super influential, and they were politically expedient, which is to say they thought it was just hunky-dory to curry favor with the Romans or with King Herod, whatever it would take to gain favor. And, and they would sell themselves out to those situations. They were very liberal, very progressive. They would look like much of the extreme liberal and progressive wing of the, quote, and I'll use air marks, church today. People who call themselves a church of Christ, but do not honor the Christ of the Word, the Word of God, okay? And so they're very, very liberal, and they basically can do whatever it does to help them get ahead. They rejected the common people. They rejected the oral traditions. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses, the Torah, um, and so they didn't accept the law and the prophets, the Psalms, the books of wisdom and these kinds of things. They rejected all that. And fundamentally, they denied some theological truths. You can read about this in Acts chapter 23. Paul, he's being cross-examined later uh, in the book of Acts. And in verse 6 of Acts chapter 23, while he's on trial, we read, but Paul perceived that one part of this group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, and he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided for the Sadducees that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees can confess both. And so Jesus here is now being interrogated by the other faction. After the Pharisees have had a go at him, after the lawyers, the scribes have had a go at him, now the liberals are coming up against him. And they don't believe in certain fundamental things that we hold to be uh, Christian doctrine. In fact, everybody but the Sadducees did. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in immortality of souls. This is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> I told you there'd be a dad joke in here today. There might be more. How will you recognize if it's a dad joke? It will become apparent. Okay? <laughs> so we've got these Sadducees, and um, they were the theological, political, cultural opponents of the Pharisees, and uh, this is going to be liberalism on parade this morning. And so they come up with this really bogus question. If you've ever worked with children, maybe you've been a teacher or something, you've probably said this at one point. You'd say, there are no stupid questions. Did anybody ever say that when you're talking to somebody, you've got a new employee or something? Well, anybody who has ever been in a position of trying to help people understand questions, even though you may have said it, you know there actually are stupid questions. And this is one of them. Like, literally, when I say that, the word stupid means without intellect, without reason. There's no foundation for what they're saying. They really don't want the answer. They don't believe in the answer. They're putting up what we call a strong straw man argument that they're going to put out a position, but it's a false position, and then try to get an answer to it. But it's, it's, it's a wrong question in the first place. Um, and so this is how they go. When uh, he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. We read about this actually in the book of Ruth. It's rather interesting, right? Uh, Naomi uh, goes to a foreign land. She, her husband died, her sons die, but her son's wives, one of them returns back with her. Her name is Ruth. And in the story of Ruth, Ruth meets Boaz. Moaz is a family member, and it's possible to keep the property in the family if 
Boaz would agree to marry Ruth and take Naomi under his wing. But the way that that was done, you'd go to the city gates. And at the city gates, you'd get together a quorum, 10 men, who would decide or judge over a situation. And in this case of uh, Boaz trying to get Ruth, he, he says, well, there's somebody who's a little bit closer relative. He has first right of refusal. So he says to him at the city gates in front of all the people, um, that if you would like to inherit the land, great, say so now. And the guy goes, okay, good deal. But you're going to have to take Naomi and Ruth. Oh, I don't want to tarnish my inheritance. Um, and so what they would do then is they would take the sandal of the man who would not accept this duty, according to Deuteronomy 25, who would not accept the Leverite vow, and they would remove his sandal. You see, the sandal in Joshua 1.3 represents property and land. Everywhere the sole of your foot treads, I will give it to you. And so, by removing the sandal, that would say, I am um, re relinquishing my right to this property. And then what usually would happen was the, the, the woman who was just shunned would spit in his face. They would handle the sandal to the guy who would take the vow, and it, it, and it would go on. In verse 7 of Ruth chapter 4, it says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead man may be cut off from among his brethren and may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So in this passage in Ruth chapter 4, or in ancient Israel, and even the Sadducees are bringing this example up. If you happen to be like walking by the gate and you see a guy limping with one sandal and his face is kind of wet, you could fairly assume that he was, uh, he was a heel, that he had no, that's all right, heckle me, okay, he had no soul. Well, these Sadducees, they have no soul. They're hecklers. They're real heels. And so we're going to see how they posit this question, this challenge to Jesus. Um, they say in verse 29, there was seven brothers and the first wife, the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as a wife and he died childless. Then the third took her in like manner and the seven also, and they left no children and died. Uh, that's pretty preposterous, right? Um, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. It's like, okay, this is kind of crazy. How are we going to answer this? And remember, these are kind of questions that really, they're, they're not meant to get an honest answer. They're, they're meant to trip you up. They'd be questions like, who was Noah's wife? Joan of Arc. Okay. Well, what was Lot's wife famous for? She's a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. <laughs> what are the epistles? The wives of the apostles? <laughs> Again, Bad questions, bad theology, you're never going to get a right answer out of the whole thing. And this is what they're trying to do. Um, it's kind of like saying, you know, well, nowadays we have organ transplants. So if I donate an organ to somebody else in this world, when we both get to heaven, whose kidney will it be? This is, you're, you're asking the wrong kind of question. Interesting story, there's a guy by the name of... Um, John Williams, and uh, I'm sorry, Roger Williams, okay? And he was from the 1700s in North America. He's the founder of the Baptist denomination. But he was buried in Providence, Rhode Island, and in the courtyard or in the graveyard near him, this is true, this is a true story, 
um, they planted an apple tree. The apple tree grew so huge, but when, it came, when they exhumed his body, they found that the root hadn't gone down through the casket, into his head, through his brain, and wrapped around his spine. So now, every time a kid would walk by and grab an apple off the apple tree, people would say, oh, you know, that's, that's where you're smart if you eat apples, because you can get the wisdom of Roger Williams, okay? Just silly stuff, but based on the wrong starting point. I will say in uh, hats off to the Southern Baptists, they've got a lot of issues just like I do, just like all of us do. But this last week, they voted to excommunicate or ask to leave several churches who did not keep with Southern Baptist doctrine, one of which was the ordination of women to the role of teaching pastor, lead pastor in a pulpit. And so churches such as Saddleback Church in Orange County, California, uh, Rick Warren, you know, the purpose-driven church, they've been excommunicated out of, the, out of the Baptist church for not holding to the scriptures. And so some of these things, you, you need to make sure you get into the scriptures and, and how this works, okay? So they ask this question, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Let me see if you've been paying attention. The resurrection. What do the Sadducees say or think about the resurrection? They don't believe it, right? So they're asking a question, and they don't believe that the resurrection even exists, but they're trying to bust Jesus. And we just read in Paul when he was in trial, he says, I'm a Pharisee. And this was done on purpose to cause division amongst the two groups. And there was plenty of Pharisees here. Jesus had just told them what's up, and now the Sadducees are taking a, a shot at it. And so Jesus is going to do some really brilliant things here in this answer. I love what he does. Um, For the seven had her as a wife. Now, um, in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, right at this point in this story, Jesus will say a verse that you don't see here, but you will see it in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine and in Mark chapter 12, 24. And it's at this point, Jesus answered and said, you are mistaken. You err. Literally, you are self-deceived. You are mistaken, not knowing the scripture or the power of God. You're asking this question, but you don't know the Scripture. You don't accept the Scripture. You do not receive the Scripture. You only have the first five books, and even that you play loosey-goosey as long as it's politically expedient for you. You err not knowing the Scripture nor the power of God, the resurrection power of God, okay? And this is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, in a couple days will hang from that cross, die, be buried, and rise again, telling them what's up. I'm up. I'm God. I win. And you're going down the wrong path here. You err, you are mistaken, not knowing the scripture or the power of God. A couple things out of the news. Just this week, Actually, technically last week. Anybody here a Jeopardy fan? I used to watch it with Alex Trebek. I, don't, I haven't seen it in the longest time. But last week in Jeopardy, you know how the, the show goes. You've got your uh, person who answers the question, the sh- host of the show, and then you've got these three geniuses, right? And they can answer every kind of question under the sun. So this was a question, and not a single one of them was able to answer it. Let's see how you do. See, we'll, we'll compare you to the geniuses. This is the question. Our Father, who art in heaven, blank be thy name. You got it. You would have won on Jeopardy that night. And this is what the geniuses of our world, of our education system, they can't even answer the first line of the Lord's Prayer. This is how far we've gone from the Scriptures and the power of God in America today. I could go on all morning long. You could go on. We could just spend a whole morning talking about the insanity that has gripped the planet. 
just a couple things. This was last week in Germany at one of these grand cathedrals that has been empty for decades and decades and decades, and nobody goes to church. It was packed to the rafters because a theologian had asked a chat AI, artificial intelligence, to write a theological sermon that he could present to the congregation, and that's exactly what he did, and he filled the house. Everybody showed up to see an AI sermon, artificial intelligence. They err, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Last month, the World Economic Forum put together a committee. The job of the committee was to take a look at all the world religions and then feed that information into a, an AI, artificial um, program, to create all the best parts, a new global religion. They're working on it now. While you and I are sitting here, they're feeding all this stuff into the computers to create a new global religion. I want to read something. It's out of the book of Revelation. See if this doesn't sound familiar to you. Beginning at verse 11 of Revelation 13, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercised all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which was he, he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed." He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. I can't say for a fact that this is that. But I can say for a fact we are closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we have ever been. And the things that we see happening daily take our breath away. Things that we're not even possible 10 years ago are happening right before our eyes. And we have all these lunatics literally out there playing that pipe, the Pied Piper's pipe. You know how the Pied Piper works? He went into town and he promised all the kids toys and he played a song and guess what he did? He played his pipe and all the children followed him. He kidnapped them child trafficking. Do you not see that happening in our world today, in our school system today, on our borders today? But just not our borders. It's happening globally. And again, there goes Mike. He's on one of his rants again. It's not a rant if it's true. And when we see all these things happening, I was looking at a uh, 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 a video that I had seen, a YouTube uh, video of Dr. Mattis Desmet. Back in 2020, in April of 2020, he came out with a YouTube video talking about mass formation psychosis. Okay? And it had to do with the whole planet buying into all kinds of lies and lockdowns and things that have been completely debunked in the science and the medicine and all that, but the whole world got on board to the point that they would turn in their own family members if they took the dog for a walk. I mean, I could take you back to those days where there's pictures of people like this one guy. He was actually a police officer. He was down in Santa Monica in Southern California. He was out on his surfboard, and he was surfing. 
but it was illegal to go to the beach because of the virus. And you can see people out there, the lifeguards and the police, they're on the beach, they go out, they grab them, they pull them in, they arrest them. And this is the kind of thing that people did, this mass formation psychosis. And Matt, Matthias Desmet shares that the only way that you can overcome this, because it's like systemic. If you want to use the word systemic, this is a good place to use it. It is everywhere in our planet. There's only one cure. You know what the cure is? The truth. You don't get angry. You don't get aggressive. You don't become one of them. I like what Proverbs chapter 9 teaches us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We stand on a rock. We don't have to move. We don't have to be shaken. Um, in Proverbs, 20, um, Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5, uh, I love this one. It was kind of a conundrum when I first started reading, and then I unraveled it. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what is that saying? Don't be like a fool when you confront a fool. Don't rage. Don't be angry. Don't be unreasonable, unintelligent. Don't be stupid when you answer stupid questions. It says, answer a fool according to his folly. You answer him the same way that he's coming at you, you become a fool. But it says, do answer him lest he become wise in his own eyes. He's telling the truth. This is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Do so just in sincerity and simplicity and stand, and the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. Okay, so we're in a really good place, but it can get bewildering at times. It can get kind of confusing at times. When we are witnessing to these people, we need to make sure we understand what their prophets, their scientists, uh, their politicians are teaching. When they say the Bible is full of contradictions, ask them, show me one. Show me one. Open it up. Point it out. You probably know more about the Bible than even many of the theologians in seminaries today. It's interesting, there was a survey done of evangelicals. 40% of evangelical Christians couldn't name the four Gospels. 60% really weren't sure who it was that preached the Sermon on the Mount. And out of 10,000, this is a massive poll or survey, 10,000 mainline Protestant ministers, pastors, people in the pulpit, 50% weren't sure if they believed in the virgin birth. 80% didn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 80% did not believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And 36% weren't sure that they believed in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are in a land of Sadducees. But we win. Look at how Jesus deals with them. He says, you are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. He says, Jesus, verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, Jesus has just learned us, schooled us, a lot about resurrection in this little answer right here. There's a bunch you could unpack. I'm not going to go into too much of it, but I want to just touch on a couple points. For starters, Jesus says there is, in fact, a resurrection. 
okay? There is a resurrection, a bodily resurrection. You and I are eternal. We are created in the image of God, and we are given a spirit, a soul, and a body. And the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that we will be resurrected, spirit, soul, and body, whole and complete. God's not just interested in resurrecting a spirit, and then we'll just be little ethereal little things, wisps of something floating around saying howdy to each other. Heaven is a real place. Heaven has real activities and real people. Heaven has many things that are very much like the earth when God created heaven in the first place, Genesis chapter 1. And he said, and it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It was perfect. And Adam and Eve were created sinless and eternal. And then they chose to rebel the fall, and we have the redemption plan which God knew He was going to do from the very beginning, that we would be resurrected into the image of His Son and live forever with Him in glory. But there's a couple of things I want to bring out here. Those who are counted worthy to attain that age, the age of the resurrection, that time when we all be gathered together with God. But it says here that counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead. Now, a lot of people get this mixed up with the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't say of, it says from. And the reason I bring that out is because there is not just one resurrection. There is resurrection unto life, judgment we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we will be present with the Lord and will await those we read in Thessalonians chapter 4, that uh, if we are dead, they'll catch up with us, and we'll be resurrected together with Christ. Then after a thousand-year reign of Christ, known as the millennium, there will be a resurrection to judgment of the dead who have chosen to reject God, chosen to reject His Son, Jesus Christ, chosen to reject His forgiveness of their sins, and so they will spend eternity separated from God. And so there's more than one resurrection And it says, verse 6, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, being angels doesn't mean that you're going to get wings and a harp and you're going to go around just making some good tunes the rest of forever. What you're equal to is that you are immortal. You will never cease to exist. And actually, we read many places in the Scripture, Hebrews chapter 1 classic situation where he says that we're even better than the angels. So, we're not equal to them in position or place. We are children of God. Angels are not, okay? We're, <laughs> that's my Father. That's my Father in heaven. The angels can't say that. But we are equal in the idea that we will never perish or never die. He goes on, and I love this. He says, verse 37, but even Moses… Now, what part of the Bible did the Sadducees accept? The law of Moses, the first book, five books of the Bible. So, Jesus goes to their words, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him kind of fun. I'll, I'll take you a couple places in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, I'll read out of chapter, or verse 22 and 23, speaking of this, this, this verse that um, has been quoted here. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I won't read that one to you. <laughs> so, here he says, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he was talking to Moses, you can read that. It's in Exodus chapter 3. And you'll see that God talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they were alive, because they were. They did not cease to exist. So, Jesus uses their scriptures and turns them inside out. Like I said, when you're dealing with your adversaries that want to give you um, all these 
foolish questions. When you really understand where they're coming from, you can easily say, well, show me the science. How does that work for you? Explain that to me. I don't understand. And when you start talking to your atheist or evolutionist or humanist or whatever friends that you have, and I hope you have friends besides the people that go to church. I, have, I hope you're witnessing and sharing Jesus with people, and they start coming up with these questions. Let them roll. Just give them as much line as you need, right? It's like fishing, man. Just let them run till you set the hook. And what you'll find is they'll go, 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 and that's about as far as they can go because that's as much as their brain can handle. Okay, how's that working for you? Where did it leave you? Dead in your sin. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, man, you can take this thing all the way to heaven. It never stops. And so, he uses their scriptures to show them their error. Uh, Verse 39, then some of the scribes, the lawyers, answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. Now, remember, the lawyers are not on the same side of the battlefield as the Sadducees. And so, there's this little contest going on in the temple, and the, some guys are cheering him on, and other guys are, rah, 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 right? And he's, he's creating division amongst them and, and making them realize that they're not as intelligent or unified or globalist as they might think they are, that they really are in different factions and going in different directions. Um, It's at this point, if you go into Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, that one of the scribes pipes up and he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he brings them right back to love, the heart of the matter, the reason I'm here, the reason I came to die, to lay down my life that you might live. It's all about love, always has been, always will be. That's the law. That's the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy. That's Leviticus. That's your law. Verse 41, now he throws a question at them. They, they, can't ask, they can't answer questions, so he goes, okay, my turn. I'll throw you a question. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, now you see these two pronouns, them and they. I'm not going to go weird on you with this, but... They're placeholders for two groups of people, okay? The them are the Sadducees. He said to them, the Sadducees, I'm addressing you liberals now. How can they, now he's talking about those scribes and Pharisees, this is their claim. How can they say the Christ is the son of David? In bringing them to the son of David who is the great king of Israel, and everybody knows it, but the Sadducees do not accept the law or the prophets, the histories, the Psalms, the books of wisdom. So now he's going to take them into a place where he's going to challenge them. You guys don't accept this as the word of God. You err, not knowing the scripture, nor the power of God. Let me take you to some place, and and we'll unpack this one. How can they say that Christ is the son of David? And he goes on to say, now David himself said in the book of Psalms, and he's going to quote out of Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. It's repeated several places in the New Testament with interesting applications, but let's look at what it says. In Psalm 110, at verse 1, we read, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, you have a couple things that are going to help you in this. One thing you don't have is a Greek or a Hebrew Bible. At least, raise your hand if you got a Greek Bible, Hebrew Bible. Okay. If you do, you're going to see a couple different words right here. Okay. In Psalm 110, we read the Lord, and that is all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is referring to God, personal God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Burnham Bush, Yahweh or Jehovah God, okay, um, the Tetragrammaton. The Lord, this is God, said to my Lord, and you're going to see that is capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. 
or in the Greek, kurios, which simply means a master, an owner, a boss. So the Lord said to my Lord, is what David is writing, penning under the power of the Holy Spirit, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's told to write it down this way. The Lord said to my Lord, David's Adonai, sit at my right hand. So the Lord, Yahweh, says to Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is father and son talking to one another. Yahweh God, Jesus Christ, Messiah, okay? Therefore, David calls him Lord. So David is calling Messiah, Son of God, Lord. And yet, in the Psalms, this is a thousand years before Christ. Jesus hasn't been born yet. Messiah isn't on the scene. He's simply a prophecy, a truth that God has revealed to us beforehand. So he says, how is it that David says to him or calls him my Lord? Uh, in Acts chapter 13, at verse 22, uh, we read um, this, this um, writing. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed... A descendant of David, son of Jesse, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Couldn't be more clear than that. Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, is a descendant of David. It goes on, Peter on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and the church was birthed and he preached this fantastic sermon Jesus preaching to the crowd says in Acts 2.32, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, he hadn't gone to heaven yet, but he says of himself, and now we quote again, Psalm 110, the Lord, Father God, said to my Lord, Son of God, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter then goes on to say, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so, kind of a, a little bit of a walk through the Scriptures, but we're not going to err, not knowing the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the best commentary of the Scriptures. If you're trying to figure out what the Scriptures mean, read the rest of the Bible. It will explain itself. And here we see this question that Jesus has now posed before the Pharisees and before the Sadducees, and stumps them both. Verse 45, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, okay, now let's turn around and talk to a friendly audience. He said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive a greater con um, condemnation. Okay? Talking about the resurrection, yes, life is eternal. Yes, there is a heaven and hell. Yes, there is a destiny for every single one of us depending on who we say Jesus is. Is he my Lord and my Savior here as Jesus is preaching this a couple days before the cross, wait until I make your enemies your footstool. Then you will rule and reign as Christ and the world will know. We have an advantage 2,000 years later. We look back, we look at all the scriptures and we can figure all this out. But at the time, Jesus is revealing this and talking to them. The Lamb of God being inspected, interrogated, looking for any spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And he's showing himself to be pure as the driven snow as right and true 
as perfect a sacrifice for a sin-ravaged world as God could possibly have given. That we know that it was sufficient and that we are indeed clean, saved, and heaven-bound. So he talks about this. Now, beware of the scribes and, and all these things they want. They want all the prestige, all the knowledge. Everybody's, yeah, yada, yada, yada. You're born a Sadducee or you're a Pharisee. You went to school and studied the scriptures or you're a scribe and you can argue the law all day long. And then what do they do? What's the greatest one? And what does Jesus say? It's about love. It's always been about love. It's always going to be about love. And you guys are missing it. And all you guys that are in this religious racket, seeing what you might get out of it. And certainly the Pharisees, the Sadducees, many of them were quite wealthy. They acquired all kinds of money and things to themselves. We look at the church, and every now and again you can Google this. And I, it's, I don't, it blows my mind, but maybe you've done this. Have you ever seen online, like some of these guys that have these churches that have yachts? and jet airplanes, and mansions, and all this kind of stuff, and they're telling the church, you need to send more, I need a second airplane, because sometimes they need to go over here and use my plane, and I need to go over here, and, and you're like, are you kidding me? Beware of these rackets. It's about love. It's about laying your life down for your friends. And, and, and this is the heart of all of this. It says, And who devours widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Do you know there's different levels of hell? They, they turn up the fire a little bit harder. Jesus talks about this in a couple different places. You know, and, and certainly if you've rejected Jesus, it's not like you go to heaven and you work on it for a little while. Maybe in purgatory we'll burn off some of the sin and then you can skedaddle out of hell and get up to heaven. It doesn't work that way. It is appointed for man once to die. Then comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And you have this life to choose. Smoking, non-smoking. Okay? That was, a, that was a good dad joke. Worship team, come on up. We're going to finish this out. I'm going to jump into just a little bit of chapter 21. To you, it looks like I'm breaking the rules, starting a new chapter. But it... The, it really breaks at verse 5. So let's look at this. He talks about these people devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites, like a penny, almost nothing. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than them all. For these ought out of their abundance, for, for all of these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. She gave sacrificially. She gave out of a heart of love. Not at a heart of strings attached. Well, I'm going to put some money in the offering plate because God's going to see that and he's going to take good care of me. Do you not know, know that God owns it all? He doesn't need your money. Then why does he even have this principle of giving, sacrificial giving? Because he wants your heart. And the thing that's probably blocking you from giving him your heart is your money. If you can just not worry about that, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, or, and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. And he looks at this widow and says, she gave more. I love that. Uh, when he uh, was anointed uh, right earlier this week, and the Pharisees were like, if you knew who that woman was that was touching you, you wouldn't let her touch you. And he talks about she who loves the most, or who has been forgiven the most, loves the most. It's just a natural response. 
You can give without love. But you can't love without giving. And it's just a real quick way to check our heart where we are. As I said, we're collecting the bottles for Sage Women's Center. We've had a month to do that from Mother's Day to Father's Day. An opportunity to rally around families, the cause of life, seeing babies born and get good homes and grow up to worship the God in whose image they have been created. And we have an opportunity as a church to give sacrificially. Many of you, I'm so blessed. Sage Women's Center, Nikki Cruz at Sage wanted to let everybody at the Springs know, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I want to thank all of you in advance that have supported Sage Women's Center and the baby bottle drive. And I get the privilege of delivering those bottles this week. And she's going to say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, yeah, okay, thank you. We receive it, but I receive it on behalf of all of us. I just want you to know that God is in the house. And whether it's vacation Bible school or taking a little bit of time to paint lines out on the street or mowing the lawn or, or whatever things that are happening around here. We've got baptisms going on. We've got all kinds of stuff. There's more ministry going on here than I have any idea. You'd think I should know, but I don't. There's so much. I can't keep up with it all because you all just love God. The question is, what do we do? Where do we go? Bring a friend. You want to see Jesus? Show up. He's here in the house. Amen? Father God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your scriptures that you have shown us the way and the truth and the life. I want to thank you for your promise of the resurrection, the power that indwells us and enables us in light of the days that we live. Just stand unashamed and just be able to tell the world the truth in love. I pray that you would now make us vessels of your grace, of your truth, and of your mercy. That we would not judge others, but Lord Jesus, that we could bring them into a relationship with you. So again, we thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, over the kids that have been down there in Children's Church and those teachers who have taken time to teach them. For those who have prepared the cookies or those who are cleaning, those who are just taking good care of us, I pray, Lord Jesus, smile on them as you smile on each of us every day in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Habern, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.